I invite you to join with me, please, in Colossians chapter number 2. Once again, Colossians 2, our scripture text this morning will be Colossians 2, verses 1 through 7. We want the best for those whom we love. For my children, I want them to excel in school. I want them to win their ball games. I want them to play flawlessly at their piano recitals. For my wife, I want my wife to be happy. I want her to have a nice home. I want to give her good gifts. And it's natural for us to want the best for those we love. And and so toward that end, we are willing to work and to labor and to sacrifice for those whom we love. And the same was true for the Apostle Paul. He wanted the best for those he loved, namely the churches. Colossians chapter two, verse number one, Paul says, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you, Colossians, and for those in Laodicea. The the conflict or the struggle it might read in your New American Standard or ESV, it's the Greek agon, think agony. And Paul endured for the churches because he desired what was best for them, for the Colossians, and for those in Laodicea. And look at verse number one again, Colossians 2 verse number one, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Okay, now, who's that? I think it I think it applies to other believers in Paul's day, of course, whom he had never met, who had not seen his face in the flesh, and I think it applies to us as well. Paul desired the best for all the churches, even ours. So from Colossians 2, verses 1 through 7, I prepared a message titled, The Best for Our church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God in heaven, we have sung hymns of praise to you, exalting you for who you are, attributing all praise and worship to you alone. And God, now we come to the Holy Scripture and we ask that you would speak to us, that you would teach us and instruct us, help us to understand and appreciate what your best is for us as the Fourth Baptist Church of Plymouth, Minnesota. I pray, God, that your spirit would illumine the scriptures to us. I pray that we might be encouraged and emboldened and strengthened this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Colossians 2, verse number one, for I want you to know What a great conflict or struggle, this agony that I have for you, Colossians, and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged. The Apostle Paul desired that we might, number one, that we might be strengthened in our hearts. Now the word encouraged in verse number two or comforted, if you have the King James Version, it's the word parakaleo. We know that Greek term 
paracoleto, for it's, for it's the term that's used of the Holy Spirit. It's the same term that's used of, of Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And it's various forms. It means to come alongside, to comfort, to exhort, to, to help, or to encourage. However, I have used the word strengthened there in Roman numeral number one in my outline because of a common use of paracoleto in classical Greek. Let me explain. We have all followed the war in Ukraine. And the images are awful. And the destruction is horrific. And the loss of life is devastating. And against all odds, at least up to this point, the Ukrainian people have resisted the Russian invasion in part, first, because of the bold leadership of their president, President Zelensky, who had every opportunity to flee the country and to find personal refuge here in the West, but has bravely remained and and rallied his people. In, In fact, he's inspired much of the world. But then also, number two, because of the assistance of nations around the world who have provided military equipment, who have provided humanitarian supplies. And because of that assistance and because of that aid, the morale of dispirited dispirited Ukrainians has been emboldened and the will of a nation has rallied and the heart of the Ukrainian people while gripped with fear and grief has at the same time been strengthened. If you want to pray for or contribute toward the needs of our brothers and sisters in Russia and in Ukraine, I would encourage you to to go to the website of our own supported missionary, Sam Slobodian, with Baptist International Evangelical Mission. You can go to baptistinternational.org is their website, and you can read, hear the testimonies of the, the stories of our brothers and sisters in Christ there. In fact, we have Central Seminary students in those very countries. And there are video clips there, there are testimonials, opportunity for you to give there, to pray. But the, the morale has, has been encouraged or strengthened, and that's Paul's desire for the churches. When the enemy is invading, our hearts are encouraged or strengthened. Most often when we think of our hearts, we we think of sentimental feelings or we think of emotions and and certainly as we think of all that's happening in Russia and Ukraine, it, it can be emotional, but in the scripture, the heart is also linked to the will and to the mind. Proverbs says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Matthew says that it's out of the abundance of our hearts that the mouth speaks. Proverbs 23 verse seven says that we actually think in our hearts. And we we might say that the heart is the internal, immaterial part of man that drives us. When Paul expresses his desire that our heart is encouraged, or strengthen, Paul is speaking of our inner man. To the Corinthians, he wrote this, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We do not lose hearts. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. 
You say, okay, pastor, but how does that work? How can we renew our inner man, strengthen or encourage our hearts when the circumstances around us, either on the macro level of geopolitical events or on the micro level of our own personal lives, it's devastating. How do we rally our hearts at these times? And I would like to suggest two Two ideas in a topical way. They're they're not explicitly found here in this text. But first, I would offer you the divine instrument of the Holy Spirit. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, Ephesians 3 verse 16, is that God would grant according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. The Holy Spirit of God is the divine strengthener for the believer. The Holy Spirit is working within us to encourage us and to strengthen us and to rally our hearts in the face of difficult days. Sometimes in an overreaction against our charismatic brothers and sisters, we minimize the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us. And that's unfortunate, I think, for us because it is the Holy Spirit is God's agent to strengthen our hearts. Not only the divine instrument, but also the human instrument is, is one another, letter B, one another. And God intends the body of Christ to support, to strengthen one another. Jesus told Peter, strengthen your brothers. Judas and Silas encouraged and strengthened the brethren in Acts 15. Paul sent Timothy to the Thessalonians to strengthen their faith. So the Holy Spirit of God is working within us and then we are working among ourselves, one another together to strengthen our hearts. It may be that this morning, this very morning, your heart is weak. Your heart is faint. It may be that your heart is gripped by fear or worry or care. It may be that your heart needs strength this morning. If we were to take a show of hands and we were to be honest, perhaps all of us would confess to that. And by the ministry of the Spirit of God within us and the loving believers around us, we can be strengthened. That's Paul's desire for our church. But there's more. Secondly, Paul desired that we might have solidarity in our love. Solidarity in our love. Look again at verse number two. That their hearts may be strengthened or encouraged is how my New King James reads. How so being knit together in love. And so grammatically the phrase being knit together in love flows from the phrase that their hearts may be encouraged. But we we don't need to know the the grammar of the text to understand what Paul is saying. It's simple logic and progression of his, his writing that their hearts may be strengthened being knit together in love. Think with me of the difference between a chain and a rope. A chain is only as strong as it's Weakest link. Paul is not using a chain as an illustration, but rather a rope. A rope is, the the genius of a rope is the numerous threads that are threaded together, woven together for strength. Single filaments are wound into strands. Strands are twisted into plates. Think of a braid. Plates are then combined into ropes, and each successive operation of the manufacturing of a, of a rope are, are done in opposite directions than the previous operation, thus ensuring the balance and the strength of an efficient rope. A two-inch diameter, three-strand nylon fiber rope, 
has a breaking point of 84,600 pounds. That's 42 tons. A rope is not as weak as its weakest link. A rope is not as strong as its weakest link, I guess I should say. But rather, a rope is wound and bound together. Look at verse 2 again. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. And the solidarity of our love for one another as a church will be our strength. In fact, Paul explains this. If you look across the page to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse number 12, I'll read quickly. Therefore, Colossians 3, verse 12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. There's a lot there, right there for our church. But verse 14, but above all these things, put on love which is the bond of perfection and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. Paul's desire for the churches in the first century, for the churches in the 21st century is that we are strengthened because of solidarity in love. And I declare to you that Fourth Baptist Church will be as strong as our love for one another. And to the degree that we abandon the imperatives of these verses, we will unravel and we will come apart as a rope. But if we're bound by our love for one another, it will be evident in our conversation with one another, in our humility and deference to one another, in our giving and sacrifice for one another because we love one another. 1 Corinthians 13, of course, gives us that description of, of love wherein if Without love, our work and our worship and our witness, it's all a waste without love. Paul desires that we have solidarity in our love. Number three, Paul's desire for our church, the best for our church is, number three, that we are steadfast in the faith. Steadfast in the faith, number three, and I would point you again to chapter two, verse number two. Let me pick up there in, in the middle of the verse and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now there's a lot here. Let's break it down. Paul desired that we be steadfast in the faith first with assurance of understanding. Assurance of understanding. Now what, what is assurance? Well, the antithesis or the opposite of assurance would be doubt or uncertainty. And from the very beginning, we know that Satan has been in the business of creating doubt and uncertainty. Satan appeared to Eve in the Garden of Eden, tempting her to disobey God's clear command to not eat the forbidden fruit. But the Bible tells us in Genesis 3, verse number 1, that Satan asked Eve a question to create doubt. Has God indeed said? And Satan put a question mark where God put a period. And by questioning 
God's word, Eve became uncertain. She began to doubt. She began to question. She was unsure. And you know the rest of the story. To be steadfast in the faith, number three, we need assurance of understanding. Okay, what is understanding? In this case, understanding is not knowledge of the facts, but knowledge by experience. Now follow this. If I were to lose my job, God forbid, I like my job. I'd like to keep my job. Thank you very much. But if I were to lose my job and you were to lose your job, we would have an experience of mutual understanding. We would have understanding of mutual experience. We have both lost our job. We understand what it is to lose our job. If you lose your job, but I don't lose my job, can I rightly say I understand what you're going through? You say, well, no, Pastor, you don't understand what I'm going through because you haven't lost your job. I've lost my job. And I say, oh, but I do understand. You see, I understand how technically there's financial implications and insurance and all the rest. And you say, Pastor Matt, you don't understand what it's like to lose a job. Paul's desire is that we have the riches of an assurance, no doubt, of understanding. That's our experience, experientially. We have assurance in our experience for us to be steadfast in the faith. Verse number five, the end of verse number five. Let me explain it in another way, Uh, like this. You have been born again by the Spirit of God. You have received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior by repentance and faith. You are a Christian. However, at some point along the course of your journey, you begin to doubt your salvation. And you come to me and you say, Pastor Matt, I'm not sure I'm saved. And so I explain the facts to you. I explain eternal security. It's a fact. The Bible promises that once you are saved, you are always saved. I quote Bible verses at you. I give you books to read. I tell you about the facts of of, of your security, your salvation. But I have not fully helped you with assurance because this assurance is not necessarily a knowledge of the facts alone. The facts are once you're saved, you're always saved. But assurance comes as you experientially understand the fruit and the fullness of your salvation. I would point you to to 2 Peter chapter one regarding this. Peter desired that the believers have this experiential assurance of their faith through the fruit of their faith. 2 Peter one, verses one through 10. You need to read that if you, you battle assurance of your salvation. So this assurance of understanding, to be steadfast in the faith, Paul's desire for our church, for each of us, is that you be steadfast in the faith, not because you know the security of your salvation, but because you understand experientially your salvation. There's a second part of our being steadfast in the faith, and that's the knowledge of God's mystery. 
the knowledge of God's mystery, and we learned of this a couple weeks ago, the, the mystery in chapter one, verse 27. The mystery is Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory, chapter one, verse 27. Here in chapter two, verse three, it, in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and Paul desired that we get a grip on the most important doctrine in the Bible, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. We call it Christology. And as we understand and have a knowledge of the, the, the doctrine of Christ, we will be steadfast in the faith. Try to illustrate it for you in this way. Many years ago, there was a gentleman who argued with me. It wasn't many years ago. I feel like it's every day, every week, every month, right? Somebody, some argument. But in this case, many years ago, a gentleman was arguing with me, insisting that when God the Son became the man Jesus that he lost many of his divine attributes. We went back and forth for weeks. I tried to explain to him that when God the Son became the man Jesus, he voluntarily laid aside the exercise of some of the divine attributes, but he did not lose them. Jesus was fully God, and fully man. However, logically, the gentleman couldn't explain the, the human limitations that, that Jesus experienced in his humanity. The man's position is known as the kenosis heresy. Kenosis is the Greek term that describes the emptying of Jesus in his incarnation from Philippians chapter 2. It was an error in the early church called Nestorianism. And it was the early church council at Chalcedon in 451 that that addressed some of these things. I've included a portion of it for you there in the the back of your notes if you want to follow as I read also on the screen. This is what was drafted at that time, an orthodox Christology. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers... We all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once, complete in Godhood and complete in manhood. Truly God, truly man, Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, but without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of the natures being in no way annulled by the union Continuing, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance. Not as parted or separated into two persons, but one. And the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us. And the creed of the fathers has been handed down to us. Without the conviction of this precision in the person of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, we will not be steadfast in the faith. If you look at Colossians 2, verse number 4 now, verse 4, evidently there were and there will be some smooth talkers. There will be some creative minds with entertaining personalities that, that have and will teach false doctrine regarding the source of wisdom and knowledge. That's Jesus Christ. Paul wanted the churches to remain steadfast in their faith in Christ. And we do this today in in two ways. The the first way we do this with apologetics. Apologetics is defending the faith to those without. We also do this with polemics. Polemics is defending the faith from those within. And, And so in both cases, 
we do battle royal in defense of the fundamentals of the faith, a right Christology, and remain steadfast in the faith. Roman numeral number three there in your notes, letter A is experience and practice. Letter B is knowledge and doctrine. And then if we look at verse number five, your good order, you see it there in verse five, is your experience, your practice, steadfastness of the faith at the end of verse five then alludes to the knowledge and doctrine. That's Paul's desire for our, our church. Number four, he desires for us to remain stable in Christ, continuing the, the very same burden, the agony, the conflict or the struggle that, that Paul labored for. And, 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 and what I want you to do, again, if you're looking at your outline there, just as points one and two complemented each other, so also numbers three and four do. So points one and two, we are strengthened in our hearts, number one, because of our solidarity and love, number two. And then also, we can be steadfast in the face, number three, because we remain stable in Christ, number four. One and two, three and four. And the progression and the development is so logical. Look at verses six and seven. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, established in the faith. Here's our theme again. This is Paul's best for our church, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. How, how have you received Christ Jesus the Lord? By faith. Then walk daily by faith in the same way. And if we can trust the Lord with our eternal souls, we can certainly trust him with our daily affairs. Of course, it needs no explanation. We understand the, the idea of being rooted and growing. The object lesson at this point is a tree with deep roots. This week I read of trees, mature trees, have thousands of feet of root system much of which extends beyond the crown of the leaves on the tree. The combined length of the roots of a large oak would total several hundred miles. The giant saguara of the southwest desert region spreads its roots laterally as much as 40 or 50 feet underground from the trunk. On large mature trees with room to grow, the roots may grow out twice as far as the tree crown to be stable to be rooted to be grounded in our Christian lives demands that we walk in the faith the faith that saved us the faith in Jesus Christ so walk in him rooted built up established in the faith that's Paul's desire for us then finally Look at the end of verse seven. I read it just a moment ago. Abounding in it with thanksgiving. Paul desired that we might make sacrifices of praise. Number five. And Paul desired that we overflow with gratitude, with sacrifice of praise. Your notes are complete, but I'd like to read a closing illustration. I think that perhaps wraps this all together. As you think about our church corporately, as you think about your Christian walk individually, follow this illustration. The Christian's life 
may be compared to the mountain stream whose rise is always small and often shrouded in remoteness, whose progress is varied, but whose destination is ever to the open sea. Here and there you will find in such streams the deep and shaded pool where all is silent and where, as we look into it, a dreamy sense of mystery comes over the soul. And on a little further, all is changed. In swift and narrow current, the water seems hurrying in earnest to some distant goal. And though there is so much motion, there is no sound. All is motion, but all is silence too. On yet a little further, and the same waters have changed their character again, and they ripple with murmuring music over the smooth pebbles which break them into tiny waves and make them dance like sunbeams in the brilliant light of the summer day. But that which perhaps beyond all other features of the mountain stream attracts our attention most is the bright cascade. Full of exhilaration and life, the stream bounds over the precipice of stone and every drop becomes a diamond and the sunshine crowns it with a rainbow spanning the wreathing mist with its many-colored arch. And we almost feel our own hearts leap with the leaping waters as they sparkle and effervesce and boil and weave veils of watery vapor and form rings of seething foam and then haste away, laden with bubbles all tinted with the brightest hues as though they had real youth and life. Such is the mountain stream. Such, I might also add, often is the child of God. His life is varied indeed, He has seasons of deep and silent and mysterious experience. He has times of rapid, silent, earnest action. He has days of softly murmuring happiness. Why should he not also have times of praise? Joyous praise, joyous times, effervescing times, when all the heart rushes forth to God in brightness and energy and joy. Daily praise should ascend from each of us to God as the perfume of the daily sacrifice ascended in olden times. There must not be fewer sacrifices under the new dispensation than that were under the old. We are priests to offer up unto God the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Alas, the dull, monotonous canal with its muddy banks is more like many a Christian than this dazzling, leaping, living mountain stream. You see, folks, praise and thanksgiving, the sacrifice of praise completes the package of what the Apostle Paul desired for the churches. The churches that he visited in Asia Minor in the first century and the churches that he never visited, even ours in the 21st century. I think a good gauge for the health of our church, the health of any believer, is this praise and thanksgiving. We want the best for those we love, and we're willing to work to ensure that they have the best. Paul loved the churches. He wanted the best for us. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, thank you for the Holy Scripture and this epistle from the the apostle 
to the church at Colossae, to those in Laodicea, and as this letter was most certainly circulated through all of those first century churches. God, as we read it today and we understand your desire for us, thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. God, I pray that we might rejoice and celebrate and praise you for that salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.